week two of a series uh, where we will be working our way through the book of Daniel leading up to Thanksgiving uh, of this year. Then we'll move into an Advent series uh, as we begin to prepare for Christmas, which is just crazy to even think about that that is close to being on the horizon. The, the book of Daniel, I mentioned this last week, it's one of the most simplistic books if you look at certain chapters within this particular book of the Bible, and yet it's also one of the most complex books in all of Scripture. And so last week I attempted to make a case for why we should engage such a complex book of the Bible. Why not hit pause on that one? There, there are um, books that we might uh, consider to be maybe prerequisites to kind of the 101 books of the Bible before we get into a book like Daniel or a book like Revelation. And there are others that maybe you put into that category of uh, being a little bit more of a varsity level book of the Bible. And so I argued for this book of the Bible by throwing out a few questions last week, the kind of questions that if you find yourself asking, make this a fantastic series to engage. Questions like, do you struggle at times to believe that God is both sovereign and good in all circumstances? Do you find yourself at times questioning whether God's really in control? Is he really seated on his throne? Do I really believe that? Especially in moments when everything comes unraveled in my life. Or maybe you believe God's sovereign, but you struggle with the goodness piece. Is he really for me? Is he really to be trusted? Here's another question. Do you struggle at times to know how to engage culture in a God-glorifying way? Do you find yourself at times wondering if you're becoming too much of a separatist, removing yourself from culture altogether, a participant and contributor toward that epidemic known as holy huddle Christianity? Do you ever find yourself on the flip side wondering whether you're perhaps going too far? compromising your faith in the name of embracing all things culture. Another question, do you struggle at times with the purpose that God has for your life? Do you, do you ever wonder why God has you here in the first place? What's he really up to? Does he have anything significant for me to participate in for the sake of his kingdom? Do you struggle at times to believe that God is at work even in the midst of what appears to be the most mundane of, of moments in your life? Do you find yourself living in the tension between your plan and, and God's plan? These are just a few of the questions that the book of Daniel invites us to ask. And I don't know about you, I mentioned this last week, but I'm convinced these are questions that I'm going to struggle with until Jesus returns or the day that I die. Because just when I think that I've got the whole sovereignty and goodness of God thing squared away, something comes unraveled in my life. And yet again, I'm faced with the question of, is he really seated on his throne? And if he is, is he really for me? Does he really love me? Just when I think that uh, I've got this cultural engagement thing down pat, some new situation presents itself to me. And yet again, I'm faced with the question of how to dig my heels in for the gospel without compromising my faith. Just when I think I've figured out God's purpose for my life, some twist in the plot takes place. And yet again, I'm questioning what God's really up to and, and how he wants to leverage me for his glory. Just when I think that I've mastered the art of contentment in the midst of the mundane, life gets super boring. You been there? And yet again, I'm faced with the question of whether God's really at work in what appears to be the insignificant. And so this is how I'm viewing the book of Daniel, and not just the book of Daniel, but every book that we go through as a church. This book is meant to be a weapon to add to your arsenal, and not just for this series, but for years to come in your life as a Christian. It's a book filled with truth that we're meant to aim at our hearts, especially in those moments when sin and unbelief creep in. 
Uh, We're meant to wield it like a sword to do battle for the sake of our very souls. And so if you walk away from this series with nothing more than, than a few more biblical insights, you've completely missed it. This book of the Bible and every book of the Bible is not just about information obtain, uh, obtaining, but rather information that when obtained leads to gospel transformation. Everything we've been talking about in this service, even leading up to this moment. And so it really is a lifelong fight to believe. And so if this were a TV series, at this point, the narrator would kick in behind some music and say, previously on Daniel. And then we kind of see, you know, the unfolding of last week, what played out, the various scenes. And so I want to take you through that in a less cool way. I don't have that uh, Morgan Freeman uh, voice, so I can't bring that to bear. But I can tell you what happened in the first seven verses to kind of catch you up to speed. Last week, we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And if you weren't here uh, or you were in the kids' wing, I would encourage you to go online and listen to the sermon in its fullness. I think it, it helps to frame this thing out and set the stage for where we're going. The, the book of Daniel opens up with God's city, the city of Jerusalem, under siege. God's people had responded to the covenant that God had made with them in disobedience. And as a result of the rebellion of God's people, a remnant of of people are exiled to the Babylonian empire in captivity. This is what biblical scholars and historians refer to as the exile. According to the first seven verses of Daniel 1, things are not looking good for God's people at all. The Babylonians get their hands on some of the vessels that are found in God's temple, and they bring these vessels back to Babylon, where they place them in the treasury of Babylon's God. And so you can picture the scene, a bunch of pagans singing, praise Marduk, the God of Babylon, uh, for whom all blessings flow. Like you can just see this worship service unfolding, and Daniel and his friends looking in on this scene, the absolute humiliation of Israel and her God. And it gets worse. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, doesn't just want the plunder, he wants people as well. And not just any people, he wants Israel's best and brightest. His goal is assimilation. Nebuchadnezzar is out to take the the most competent as prisoners of war, to indoctrinate them and to use them to run the world that he wants to run, which is quite brilliant because simultaneously he's able to weaken Israel by removing her leaders from her and also to strengthen Babylon as he brings those very leaders into his empire. We're told that Daniel and his buddies make the cut, teenage boys who are considered the cream of of the crop amongst uh, the the remnant that are brought in. Nebuchadnezzar's plans include schooling these boys at the University of Babylon and education that would have included classes in astrology, mythology, fortune-telling, and dream interpretation. The plan also includes the development of Babylonian taste buds as the boys are to be brought in on the king's diet of meat and wine. The boys are even given new names, which is a big deal because at birth they had been given names that were representative of God's character and redemptive work. And now they're being stripped of those very names and given names representative of pagan gods. And I mentioned this last week, none of this is the worst part of verses 1 through 7. The biggest dilemma upon which the the fate of the entire world rests is this. Will the tribe of Judah be swallowed up by Babylon? Will the lineage of David be extinguished in the midst of exile? Which is a big deal because the promised Messiah is to come from the tribe of Judah as a descendant of King David. Will the hero of God promised uh, in Genesis 3 to be sent to crush Satan and rescue God's people from sin and death, will he actually ever make it onto the scene? That's the big question. 
or will we be left without a savior, hopeless, separated from God forever? And in light of all that bad news that verses one through seven present us, the good news is this. Things are not what they seem. And you will see that throughout the course of this entire series, that the hope lies in three little words found in verse two. The Lord gave. That Daniel 1 isn't simply the story of a mighty Babylonian king conquering a not-so-mighty nation. Daniel 1 isn't simply the story of a rebellious people experiencing the consequences of their sin. Daniel 1 is the story of a sovereign God who, despite appearances, is seated on his throne. And he still is to this day. We'll see it over and over again. That God hasn't lost control of the wheel. He's not sweating it from his throne in the heavenlies. God is the one at the helm, no matter how things may appear throughout the course of this entire book of the Bible and throughout the course of human history. He's got a plan, and though it may not appear so at first glance, it's a plan for the good of his people. It's a, it's a theological matter that, that you and I get to wrestle with over and over again as we work our way through this particular book of the Bible, that God is both sovereign and good. Do you really believe that? That in the worst of human circumstances, if you're his child, he's got you in the palm of his hand. And there's a purpose, even in the worst of your sufferings. As we pick up the story this week, we get an opportunity now to see how our boy Daniel responds. What's he going to do? In the midst of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, pagan assimilation plan, what's Daniel's response going to be? If you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 1. We'll be in verses 8 through 21 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats. Uh, Seats in front of you, you can grab one of those Bibles and open up to Daniel chapter 1. It's after Isaiah and Jeremiah. Those are pretty thick books in the Old Testament. Just go a few books later and you'll find Daniel there. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours. Take it for free. We're excited for you to own a Bible. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, thank you for what you did in our midst last week in setting the stage for where we're going for the next few months as a church as we dive into this glorious, complex, beautiful book of the Bible. Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts this morning, that you would open our ears to hear things that maybe we haven't heard before, um, that you would open our hearts to receive the truth of your word, that you would work in us so that you can work through us, God. Pray everything that Jason and Justin mentioned earlier, uh, that you, you, by the power of the gospel, would continue to transform our hearts. And that if there are those in this room who don't know and love you, Jesus, they, they would be compelled by your gospel this morning. We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ the Son. Amen. Verse 8, but, in light of all that verses 1 through 7 have to say, but... Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Okay, now let me just stop here for a second. Does anyone else find this a bit odd? Daniel, you're going to be surrounded by pagans singing praises to their pagan gods. Daniel, you're going to be enrolled at the University of Babylon and you're going to take the most pagan classes under the sun. Daniel, you're no longer going to be called Daniel, but rather a name that connects you to a pagan god. What does Daniel push back on? His diet. Am I the only one who thinks that's crazy? As I read this this week, I'm going, come on, bro. Are you kidding me? You're not going to push back on the secular education? 
You're not going to push back on answering to a pagan name for the next 70 years of your life? Seriously? It's the diet that bothers you? Like, was he caught up in some paleo plan over in Jerusalem, and now all of a sudden the wine's just going to screw that up? Or what's going on here? And here's the most disturbing part. We have no conclusive evidence as to why this is the hill that Daniel decided to die on. Some argue that maybe the food wasn't aligned with Levitical law, but that doesn't explain Daniel's rejection of the wine. Some argue that perhaps the meat was used in a pagan sacrificial system, but then there's no guarantee that the vegetables weren't also used in that very sacrificial system as well. Some argue that maybe Daniel saw the partaking of the king's food as a declaration of dependence upon Babylon and her king. But but then you have to ask the question, is Daniel importing food from Jerusalem? No, he's not. Anything he eats is a declaration that I'm dependent on Babylon and her king. We have no way of knowing why it is that Daniel goes after this particular issue and makes it the one worthy of fighting for. And here's the reality. That's probably a good thing for us because it keeps us from making the application point too narrow. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm a person who likes things black and white. As often as I can get it served up on a platter as black and white rather than gray, give it to me all day long. Because then at least I know, okay, God, you don't want me to do that. You do want me to do this. But what we're going to find throughout the course of this book of the Bible is that there is much more gray than we like to imagine as it pertains to the Christian life. That there, there is a lot that is not quite as clear cut as, as we would like to think it is. And what that means, as we'll see momentarily, is that we're dependent on the word of God the Spirit of God at work within us, and the family of God surrounding us to make sure we didn't screw up the first two of those. And so if the gray terrifies you, welcome. Welcome to to the church. It is gray and muddy and messy, and we're going to talk about how to work through all of that together for the glory of God. Because the truth is, though it's gray and challenging, it also means that the Christian life is far more robust and complex than people like to reduce it down to and make it to be. Suffice it to say that Daniel faces a moment in which he's convinced that the compromising of his faith is at stake here. The defiling of himself somehow in the midst of a pagan wasteland. I mean, think about the kind of wisdom necessary to navigate these kind of waters. Okay, we're, we're not talking about a fiery furnace moment, right? This isn't uh, chapter 3. We're not talking about a, a den of lions moment. This isn't chapter 6. We're talking about something much more subtle here. Ronald Wallace in his commentary says this. He says, we should remember that the devil is an even greater danger in the world's dining rooms than in the den of lions. When we hear the sounds of the king's meal being served, when we hear the glasses clink, we should be even more on our guard than when famished lions open their mouths. (laughs) How often do Christians declare, here am I, Lord. Use me in massive ways for your glory. I want to be used in a big way for the sake of your kingdom. Yet how often are those words coupled with an unwillingness to remain faithful in the smallest of things? I want us to feel that tension right now in the room. I want us to feel like we can't do this thing alone, like we desperately need God because we do. More to come on that in a moment. For now, suffice it to say that the compromising of Daniel's faith is at stake. Therefore, the second half of verse 8 He asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He he doesn't get heated in the moment. He doesn't respond harshly to the pagans surrounding him. He simply stands firm on his convictions and makes a request. This is a man filled with confident 
humility because he knows that God is ultimately on his throne. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. There's that phrase again, God gave. It's a reminder that though Daniel and his friends are are not in their land, they are with their God, which is significant. Verse 9 is this glorious declaration of God's presence, protection, and provision. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. Or why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So this guy that Daniel's made headway with, which is missional in and of itself, says, I, I, man, I'd love to help you, buddy. But, but if I give you and your friends what you're asking for and you come out on the other end not looking quite as healthy as your peers... It's, it's off with my head. Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Kind of makes me wonder, going back to verse 10, if the chief of the eunuchs didn't so much refuse Daniel's request, but rather kind of in a roundabout way maybe said, well, I can't help you, but if if you can maybe find some other way around this thing, more power to you, brother. Because what we see is Daniel go to the next in command, and he proposes this trial run at a, what he believes to be a God-honoring diet. Let's just give this thing a run for 10 days. There's no harm, no foul there. If things aren't up to par, then you're, you're more than welcome to reevaluate whether or not to put us on the king's diet. And so verse 14 tells us he listened to them in this matter. And tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. This this is quite amazing. The, The grace of God is very subtle here, but it's remarkable at the same time. You have a pagan leader with everything to lose willing to take a risk on Daniel and his buddies. Why is that? Again, verse 9. Because God gave. And not only that, you have a bunch of high metabolism teenage boys somehow coming out on the other end with more meat on their bones by way of an all-veggie diet than their peers who are eating meat and potatoes for 10 days. That's crazy. It's very subtle, God's grace at work here. Probably just a few pounds added just to show a little healthiness along the way. Which is oftentimes how God works in our lives. Rarely is God's grace the shutting of the mouths of lions, though he certainly does do that. Oftentimes his grace is very subtle, and if our eyes aren't open to see, we will miss him at work in our lives in the smallest of moments. The other thing to note here is that you have these tandem jet engines at work. We talked about this before. You see both divine sovereignty and human responsibility All that we see come together in verses 8 through 16 and really throughout the rest of this book of the Bible is a result of of both Daniel's obedience and God's commitment and faithfulness to Daniel and his work providentially in the midst of all that's unfolding here. It is absolute folly to sacrifice one on the altar of the other. In other words, I got this, God. I don't need you. I can make my own way. Human responsibility. 
at the expense of divine sovereignty. Or, or the flip side of that, also folly. God's in control. He doesn't need me. doesn't matter what I do. He's decreed what will come to pass anyway. Where do you tend to err? Let me, let me tell you how fickle my human heart is. Okay? I can use either one of those to justify a life that, that never finds myself on my knees in prayer to the Lord. Let me tell you how I do that, okay? Human responsibility. When I elevate that to the extreme, it becomes, I don't have time to pray. I got to get to the next commentary. Sunday is always coming. Every seven days, it's going to be here. I got to get to the next meeting. I've got to dive into the next passage of scripture. I've got to become competent in these things. I've got to think forward on where the church is going. And all of a sudden, in the name of human responsibility, there's an absence of prayer in my life. On the flip side, in the name of divine sovereignty, I can declare with the best of them, God's in control. He's on his throne. Does it really matter that I spend 15, 20 minutes in prayer for my family, for my own life, for this community, for the church, for my neighbors, for my coworkers? God's going to do what he's going to do. Maybe you can relate to that. It's a both and. Daniel's faithfulness is critical, and yet it's worthless without God's faithfulness, his sovereignty, his providence, his grace at work throughout this entire story. Verse 17, we're told as the story unfolds, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Uh, again, God is at work giving these boys what they need by his grace, and, and it's tailor-made. This verse should jump out to you if you've ever read the book of Daniel before. Because what you'll find is in the coming chapters, Daniel is going to participate in some dream interpretation for the glory of God. That verse 17 is a setting of the stage for what's to come. That's what God does. If God is growing you, if God is equipping you, if God is gifting you, it's so that he can mobilize you. And so pay attention to the ways that God is at work in you. It will tell you a, a whole lot about how God just might want to spend you for his glory. Verse 18. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, it's final exam time before the king in all of his pagan glory. And verse 19 tells us the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. In other words, not only did the boys get schooled at Babylon U, they graduate with honors. And they managed to do so without compromising their faith. One of the most convicting verses in this entire passage to me. Because here's the reality. Peter Pan syndrome is an epidemic in our culture. This dream to live a life in which you never have to grow up. A life in which many never seem ready to pull the trigger on cultural engagement for fear that they just might fall on their faces. Meanwhile, 14-year-old Daniel and his friends who are all going through puberty at this moment are shaking up a pagan empire for the glory of God. 
They have a solid enough foundation in the Lord to enter into the worst of pagan environments and to come out on the other side not only unscathed, but having shaped the very pagan atmosphere that was out to shape them. That's significant. And unquestionably, let's give credit where credit's due. God gave. We can't forget about that. Divine sovereignty and grace are undoubtedly at work in this moment. But Daniel and his friends, under the banner of God's sovereignty and grace, are faithful. They don't shrink back from culture, taking on the approach of the separatist. They don't start some holy huddle. They don't uh, create an Amish village on the Babylonian farm. Nor do they go too far, taking on the approach of the syncretist. Ah, we'll just become all things Babylon. It's what I can only imagine is the life lived constantly on one's knees in prayer. Seeking a steady dose of the wisdom of God. And a life lived constantly asking fellow believers to speak into those ever-changing circumstances. We all have to wrestle with the ethical, cultural, missional question of what it looks like to reject certain things in our culture. uh, Things that will never be glorifying to God in any fashion. What it looks like to receive certain things in our culture. Things that are just fine as they are. They don't need anything mixed into the mixing bowl with them. And then certain things that need to be redeemed in our culture. Things that simply need to be reclaimed under the banner of the gospel for the glory of Christ. And that's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all response, right? Coming back to what I said earlier about living in the midst of the gray. According to the scriptures, it is a one-size-fits-all response to reject things like prostitution. Never going to be a God-glorifying version of prostitution, just so you know. You don't have to read the Bible to figure that one out. And, and, and the list goes on and on. We could just name one thing after another. But, but in the little daily decisions of life, we face different situations that warrant different responses. I, I was reading Tremper Longman's commentary uh, this week, and, and he made the statement. He used the example of schooling your children, which was very important to me. I've got a one-year-old and a two-year-old, so we're forward thinking there about what, what we're going to do. And he said, you know, oftentimes Christians will you know, champion, well, it must be a Christian school. Like, that's the only way to get a Christian worldview into your kids. And so Christian school is the way to go. And, and there are others who go, no, um, e- even Christian schools um, are imbibed with the spirit of the age. And so we must homeschool our children. And then there are others who go, yeah, but that's going to lead to the ghettoization of the church. And that's a real word, by the way. And, and so we need to public school our kids. And, and, and his statement in response to that in this commentary was, maybe, maybe, and maybe. And it may actually change as your kids develop into different stages of life even. It may not be even a one answer fits you for the entirety of your child's adolescence. Which again was deeply bothersome to me. Because I'm going, dude, just give me the one answer, bro. Like you can't, that's not how I function. Basically what he declared was, it's super gray. And you need people around you to rally around you. And the spirit of God at work within you. And the scriptures waving as the authoritative banner over all of it to make wise decisions for the glory of God. That we're deeply dependent on the wisdom of God. But here's the good news. If you're a Christian, you have the wisdom of God. I've already given away the farm here. How do I know? Because you do have the word of God. You have the Bible to help you navigate cultural waters for God's glory. And not only the word of God, you have the spirit of God leading and guiding your steps as you seek to glorify God with your life. And not just the word of God and the spirit of God, but you do have the family of God. Just look around you. This is a gift 
That we don't have to go at this thing in isolation. We've been talking about it for weeks now. We, we have people that we can surround ourselves with to seek the wisdom of the Lord collectively. To make sure that we're not misfiring on the word of God and what we think the spirit of God is declaring to us. We have an opportunity as we embrace these gifts to be gospel transformers of culture for the glory of God. And so here's the reality. If you want me to take you further than that, I wish I could, but I can't. It would be folly for me from this auditorium stage to attempt to address every nuanced ethical cultural situation in this room. Can't be done, which is why we must get smaller. Surrounding ourselves with a group of fellow Christ followers who will rally around us and seek the Spirit's leading with us. Enter shameless plug for community groups here. We deeply need God's word. We deeply need God's spirit, and we deeply need God's people. And to abandon any one of those three is absolute folly. Notice how this chapter ends. Verse 21, a simple statement, and yet so profound. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. A couple things that are critical to note as we wrap up chapter 1. Number one, the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. Daniel and his buddies find themselves in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. There's no Nebuchadnezzar on the scene anymore. In fact, a few kings have come and gone. And now we find Cyrus, the king of Persia, the empire that eventually conquers Babylon nearly 70 years after Daniel and his buddies are taken into exile. In other words, God's response is not, Daniel, good job with the diet thing. Back to Jerusalem for you, buddy. Rather, it's Well done, good and faithful servant. Keep at it for another 70 years. What do you say? Every day is not going to be an adrenaline rush of a lion's den experience, but I've got fruitful work for you to do nonetheless. In fact, last week we looked at Jeremiah 24. Remember that? The good figs and the bad figs? If you fast forward a few chapters later in Jeremiah's book of the Bible to chapter 29, you get this really fascinating passage of Scripture. You're more than welcome to flip there uh, if you'd like. Um, these words are actually words that make it into Daniel's hands as an exile. So Daniel gets to read these very words from Jeremiah chapter 29. Look at beginning in verse 4. It's up on the screen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Do you see some of the language of permanency there? Nothing wrong with renting an apartment. But that's not what God says to do. He says, I don't want you to live in a flat. I want you to build a house. I don't want you to go shop at Kroger. I want you to plant a garden and watch the produce grow up out of the ground slowly and utilize it. Leverage it for the welfare of the city. Not only that, I want you to take wives and have sons and daughters. As I read that, I thought, okay, check. Got that one down. Cool. So we can go back to Jerusalem, right? Nope. I want you to take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Uh Uh-oh. That's another 25 or 30 years for me. That they may bear sons and daughters. You see where God's going here? It's going to be a while. This is a great Snickers commercial, isn't it? Not going anywhere for a while. I want you to seek the welfare of the city, God says, where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. She's trying to convert you to all that is Babylon. You remain faithful to me, and I'm going to do some converting of my own, God says. 
I'm going to spread my glory and my renown all over this pagan wasteland. And Daniel, I'm going to use you and your buddies to make that happen. What an honor and a privilege. You know that doesn't end with Daniel, right? Like We get to be a part of that too. We get to be a part of this glorious redemptive story that God is authoring. And we have a unique position in human history and a unique place on planet earth to embrace that. Jeremiah goes on to say, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 70 years in a pagan wasteland, and yet God is at work using Daniel and his friends for good. Did did you know, I didn't know this until I started studying for this series, Did you know that there are only nine days in Daniel's life that are deemed worthy of being recorded in Scripture? And yet God was at work in all of it. The nine crazy days and everything in between. And in fact, the stage was set for those nine crazy days by simple faithfulness in the everyday. So let me ask you this question. Are you in it for the long haul? Do do you really have a long-term view of the marathon that is the Christian life? Do you really believe that God is at work in what appears to be the most mundane moments in life? Because here's the reality. Glorifying God doesn't always involve shutting the mouths of lions, though that would be super cool. Glorifying God doesn't always happen in the 5,000 degree centigrade heat of a fiery furnace. Sometimes the best way to glorify God is to build a house. Sometimes the best way to glorify God is to plant a garden. Sometimes the best way to glorify God is to put a ring on it. God is always, he's always up to something. Even in the midst of what appears to be the most mundane, the most simplistic. He's always at work both in and through his people. Now let me close with this this morning. Because I don't know about you, but when I look at my life, especially in light of Daniel and his buddies, I feel like a complete failure. Okay, I want to do great things for the glory of God, and yet I'm less than faithful in the small things oftentimes. I want to live my life embracing the fullness of divine sovereignty and human responsibility both, and yet I can easily sacrifice one on the altar of the other. I really do want to engage culture for the glory of God, but I find myself at times retreating into my comfort zone of holy huddle Christianity, and at other times I find myself embracing things that compromise my faith. It is a real struggle for me to to live in the tension of, of what that looks like. And so if the moral of the story is simply be like Daniel, we should just end this series right now and all walk away despairing and hopeless. But the reality is that's not the moral of the story. Thanks be to God for the gospel. This is the most encouraging quote that I read this week in preparing this sermon. Ian Duguid in his commentary says this. He says, the good news of the gospel is not simply that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. It is that a Savior has come to deliver faithless and compromised saints like us. Our salvation rests not on our ability to remain undefiled by the world, but rather on the pure and undefiled offering that Jesus has provided in our place. Jesus Christ came voluntarily into this world with all of its pains and trials. He endured far greater temptations and sufferings than Daniel did or that we ever will. Yet he remained entirely faithful and pure until the very end without spot or blemish and grants the perfection of his obedience to all those who trust in him by faith. That, church, is the empowering fuel for living a life 
for the glory of God. The gospel. Soaking in that beautiful truth over and over and over again and allowing it to compel you to move forward for the glory of God. That as we commit ourselves to this marathon, we run for a king who spilled his blood for us. That's not your typical king, by the way. We run for a king whose kingdom shall know no end, Daniel tells us. Let me ask you this. When you read verse 21, where's where's Nebuchadnezzar? He's gone, right? Ralph Davis in his commentary says this. I love this quote. Babylon, the hairy-chested macho brute of the world, has dropped with a thud into the mausoleum of history while fragile Daniel, servant of the Most High God, is still on his feet. That the kings and kingdoms of this world will come and go. King Jesus is the only eternal king, and his kingdom is the only eternal kingdom. And so if you're not a Christian, I would implore you this morning to turn to the one true king, to come to him with nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith, to fall on bended knee to him and declare him as both savior and king. And if you are a Christian, I would encourage you to soak in the beautiful truth of the gospel, to to allow the gospel to radically orient or reorient you to Jesus's mission of renewing the world, that God has has a great purpose for your life. Do you really believe that? That he's happy to spend you for his glory. So let's wrestle with what that looks like as a church, even in the midst of what may be hazy and gray oftentimes. Let's figure out what that looks like by embracing the gifts that we've been given by God's grace, the word of God, the spirit of God, and the family of God. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.